Again, good morning. Yeah, I think they set a new record for the average age of our ushers today. What is it, 13, 14? Anytime Rico's bringing up the age, that's something. All right, so uh, we're in Psalm 22 today. Grab your Bible, grab an app, open up to Psalm 22. It's a a very well-known psalm. It's the one that quotes or Christ quotes it uh, on the cross. Uh, and as Christians, we tend to come to Psalm 22 and we read it only in reference to Jesus on the cross. And, and yet, King David wrote this long before then. And, and so it makes us kind of want to come to this. We, we want to ask this question, but, but who is Psalm 22 really about? Who is this about? Is it about King David or is it about Jesus? And for this psalm, you have to read it a bit like those optical illusions you've seen before in, in books. Um, you've probably seen the one that asked that question, do you, do you see two faces looking at each other, or, or do you see a candlestick in the middle? And, and, and you can't really answer that question, right? Is it, is it a candlestick, or is it two faces? You, you might see one or the other, but in reality, it's, it's really both. And so in regards to this psalm, is it really about King David, or is it really about Christ? The answer is yes. Uh, it's really about both of them. It's a, a lament for God's people during the Old Testament, but it's also a prophecy that is fulfilled in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, it's also a bit long, and, and so rather than reading the entire thing to start off here, we're just going to read the first two verses, and then as we get to each section, we'll read again that little section so that it stays fresh in our mind as we're working through that. But uh, for the beginning here, I ask that uh, you follow along before you and keep it open as we work through it, because we'll be going right back to the scripture again. <clears throat> beginning in verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night but I find no rest. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, make our minds to understand your word this morning. Show us this morning how wonderful you are. Show us Christ in the Old Testament, and yet teach us the confidence that David had in you during this time. As we move through this passage, fill our hearts with gratitude and, and teach us to, to pour ourselves out in prayer and to trust you and to be satisfied in all that you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we get into this, I want to take a moment and, and go to the New Testament, go forward. Uh, because after the death and the resurrection of Christ, two of his disciples uh, were walking down a road. They were on their way to a city called Amasis. And they were discussing the things that had gone on, the things that had happened in their life, uh, things that had happened to Jesus. And Jesus joins them and begins to walk alongside them, and yet they don't recognize Jesus. Something supernatural is, is going on that keeps them from recognizing him. And then in Luke 24, verse 27, we, we read this. It says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He's looking at the Old Testament, and he's explaining the way the Old Testament is talking about Christ. James Montgomery Boyce explains this, this moment in history when Jesus is talking to them as the very first Bible study in, in, Christian era, in the Christian era. 
and, and it was taught by Jesus himself. And his point there is just what an amazing Bible study this must have been. And, and we don't know the content exactly of what Jesus teaches, but we do know that the general teaching of what it is, is that we are supposed to look at the Old Testament. We are supposed to read the Old Testament through the lens of the death and the resurrection of Christ, through everything that we know from, the, from Christ. And so it's not a coincidence that Psalm 22 describes the cross of our Savior. Seeing Christ in the Old Testament, then, it isn't always as obvious as we're going to see it in this passage today. It becomes very obvious here. It's almost impossible to miss because Jesus actually quotes from verse 1 while upon the cross. You can see it in Matthew 27, 46. I'll read it. You can go there if you want, though. It says, In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabathani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus cries this prayer, he, he knows what total abandonment is like. He actually understands it in a way that David doesn't understand quite, quite fully. He only understands it in a partial way. And, and yet this is what someone, anyone, feels during life when, when they have something going on, some struggle, some suffering, and yet they haven't found relief yet. David continues here in verse 1 by praying, Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Notice here, David doesn't give the exact details of this. A lot of the Psalms we know, well, this is when this was going on in David's life, or this was going on in David's life. We don't know what's going on in David's life here. They're, they're missing. It's left open-ended. And, and, it, and it's beautiful that it is this way, because anyone can then come to this passage and follow this pattern of prayer that we see right here. And for that reason, it, it's been read and it has been prayed by the Israelites and by Christians throughout history. Anyone who, who is a follower of the Lord, who has felt abandoned by God at some time, has come to this prayer and been able to pray it. Um, in other words, we too, me, you, today, we can, we can and we should apply this passage to our own struggles. E even if you feel abandoned, right? You go to God, you tell God that, you take that to Him. And that's the way we can approach God. We can take these kind of complaints even to the Lord. So then after this first lament, I think the outline's in your bulletin. You'll see this kind of lament that's a back and forth. But after the first lament, David's prayer uh, turns to confidence in verses 3 through 5. Listen as I read this. He says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and, and were not put to shame. The first thing the psalmist does here, pay attention to this. There, there's something we could certainly learn here. Uh, the first thing he does in this moment of suffering and, and feelings of abandonment is to stop and, and praise God. Praise him for who he is, namely that he is holy. And, and then to remember the faithfulness of God in the past right? He, he's preaching to himself. He's preaching God's faithfulness to, to the fathers, a remembering of, of what God had done in the past for his people. Maybe, maybe he's thinking of, of Joseph being delivered from the Egyptian prison. Or, or maybe he's thinking of, of the whole, all of Israel, as, when they are delivered from slavery in, in Egypt, or any other number of other times where, where the Lord has delivered his people from whatever it is that's going on in their life. 
And the longer history goes, the more we can actually recount the past faithfulness of God to his people. We, we can remember, right, in the New Testament, even last week we saw it, where Paul and Silas were delivered from prison by, by the work of the Lord, and it's very clear there. But we might forget, we can do this throughout all of church history, actually. Uh, God rescued Augustine. From his selfishness, his unbelieving ways. He, he rescued Martin Luther from the many people who sought out to, to kill him. You know, God has been faithful to begin a good work in us. And he will bring that work to absolute completion, to its end. We can trust that. And then in verse 6 to 8, he again goes back to lamenting. And he prays there. He says, But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people all who see me mock me they make mouths at me they wag their heads he trusts in the lord let him deliver him let him rescue him for he delights in him see others have treated him so unhuman like that that he compares it to being treated like a worm his fellow Israelites mock him. They, they wag their heads at him. That's what that means. It, it, these are things that we also see at the, at, the, at the crucifixion of Christ, right? Matthew 27, 39, we read, And, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. And then a few verses later, the leaders say, he, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. We're seeing this play out in the death of Christ. You see how similar that what I just reading was to, to our passage here today in verse 8. He, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. It, it, it's meant to make him conclude God does not care about you. Sometimes it's not what others are saying to us that, that lead us to that. So sometimes it's the whisper in our own thoughts, isn't it? You, you say God loves you. If God really did love you, then wouldn't he have stepped in and helped you by now? That's the thought that can come into our mind sometimes. And I want us to look at this to see how David responds to that in the hopes that we might learn how we might respond to that in verses 9 to 11, he again professes his trust in God. He writes this. He says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust, me at my, trust you at my mother's breast. Oh, uh, on you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. How do you sustain your faith? When troubles and suffering and fears assail you. Again, David does it here by preaching to himself. He's preaching to his own soul, preaching the faithfulness of God, not only to God's people in the past, not only to other people, but, but in his own life, in David's past. I mean, can you relate to this back and forth that we, we see here? We have those moments of life of, of doubting God's goodness and, and then remembering God has been good in the past to us. Or we have those moments of feeling anxiety or depression and then remembering that God has brought me through this in the past. That's the confidence that he can do it again. We, we must be preaching to ourselves the, the, the steadfastness of, of God's faithfulness and the certainty of the gospel. Now, 
look back on your life sometimes, right? How has God worked when you faced issues? Medical issues, relationship issues, job concerns? Even that God gave you faith in life is, is a work in the past that he has done in your life. Or, or when God has strengthened your faith at some point in your life, maybe you, you drifted away from him and he drew you back to himself. You know, that is, is a work of God in your life, taking your weak and feeble faith and making it stronger. And he says here in, in verse 10, From my mother's womb you have been my God. That, that's the story that we desire for all the children who are, are born into the covenant community. It, 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 indeed, that's the life story of, of many of you. We, we hear it in the membership interviews. It goes something like this. I, I, I am a covenant child or was a covenant child. I, I don't remember a single day in my life when I didn't trust the Lord. I, I've grown up believing in the Lord and having faith in Jesus. And, and what we find that more often than not, um, it's said almost apologetically. Um, something like, my testimony is really boring. You know, I'm sorry, my, my testimony is really boring. Uh, and, and it's this kind of idea of, you know, I didn't spend years in a gang. I, you know, I never killed anybody. Uh, I'm not a heroin addict, never was. You know, I, I wasn't a staunch atheist that, you know, read C.S. Lewis and the Lord opened my eyes or, or something like that. My, my testimony is so boring. Please forgive me. Can I still be a member? No, it didn't go that bad. Uh, but it's this almost undercurrent of... of of apologetic. And we want to say, don't, don't, don't do that. To say I am a covenant child and I don't know a day of my life that I didn't trust the Lord, that is a glorious, glorious testimony. Don't apologize for that. That's the way the Lord worked in your life, and it's glorious. Every parent desires that for their children. Nobody wants their children to have interesting testimonies. They just don't. Don't apologize. And so here then, David prays with this expectation. He, he prays for the opposite of forsaking. He's saying, God, be not far from me. Listen, we, we often talk about praying scripture. And this little line here, this is one we should be praying all the time. You want to know, if you just want to begin praying scripture, come right here. Uh, you know, we, yes, when you're under attack, but from the outside, right? But in our life, we don't always relate to the psalmist because we don't have people coming out on the outside so much. Uh, but, but think about this. When, when you're attacked even from, from internally, right? The, the, uh, the attack of apathy or, or unbelief, you know, whatever it is that might threaten our heart to pray this, Lord, be not far from me. Don't forsake me. Lord, Lord be near. We pray that, pray the scripture. And then once again, he returns to lamenting in verses 12 through 18, where he prays this. He says, many bulls encompass me. You get the feeling their prayers are a lot more interesting than ours. Um, anyway, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a postcard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I cannot count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. 
His bones are seeable because he is wasting away in his health. The bulls of Bashan were known for being strong. Lions, you don't really need to explain. You know how dangerous a lion can be. Uh, but being surrounded by man's best friend, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? Dogs. Uh, don't imagine a little lap dog like a chihuahua. Don't imagine a big lap dog like a Weimar Rhymer. Or any other dog that you'll actually let live inside your house. That's not what Israel and, and this has in mind. In Israel, dogs weren't pets. They were these wild scavengers that were in the streets, and they would eat anything they could find, living or dead. In other words, David is saying here, there are many who desire to see me dead, and they are all around me, and David is expressing uh, this inner turmoil. And, and of course, you, you look through this section and you see the content of, of the crucifixion of Christ all, all throughout it, you know, literally involved at the, the crucifixion of our Lord, pierced my hands and feet, casting lots for his garments, the great thirst, and so on and so on. We, we see it everywhere. But now I, I want to move to this next section. This, in this next section, we, we, we see this big turning point of Psalm 22. If you ever think this is where everything shifts, and, and you can miss it real easy if you read through something like the Psalm 22 quickly. But starting in verse 19, listen. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. The, the animals are mentioned again. It's in reverse order here. I'd love to tell you the significance of that, but I didn't find any. Um, but here in these, these first two verses, what we do see is that he's asking God to intervene. He's asking God to actually deliver him because he knows that God can change anything, everything. There is this, this unwavering faith of David as he prays this. It's a, a prayer, something like, God, my whole life is a mess, but you, O oh Lord, you can change that. Please do. And so the, the big change here, though, happens in, in verse 21. Look at it. It begins with that prayer, save me, but it ends with David praying, you have rescued me. God does it. He did it. And from this point forward in, in Psalm 22, there is no suffering mentioned. From this point forward, we see deliverance, we see resurrection, we see victory, and we see praise. You have rescued me. God does it. There is deliverance. And in 2 Timothy 4.17, uh, the Apostle Paul is, is there writing, and he, and he speaks about a man named Alexander the coppersmith. Uh, that Alexander had done something terrible to him. We don't know the details of what it is. But, but then he shares about God's deliverance using the same image of the lion that we see here in Psalm 22 today. Paul says this. He says, The Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. I love that because there's no lion near him. We don't know exactly what's happening with Paul, but, but here he is relating to, to a psalm, to relating to David, relating to what it means to be surrounded by a lion attacking him. The Lord delivered him, and he, and he understood it. He saw it. Sometimes we, we miss our rescue. We miss the way that God is actually doing these things. And so I'll ask you, you, know, are you have you taken time to, to recognize in your life when God has actually rescued you from trouble? And so then, how does David respond 
to this deliverance. We see this in the, the remaining section, almost the remaining section. Look, uh, starting in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the, afflicted or the, afflict, uh, the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Your kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. Shall bow, bow all, all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. You see, the overarching theme here is, is praise. And, and we naturally praise whatever it is we find praiseworthy. That's, that's part of what we do as, as humans. And there's this subconscious way that we even want to draw others into our praise, whatever it might be. Um, when, when Laura's a freshman in college, her, her brother was a senior in college, and they would go out to lunch occasionally. And there was one time he took her to her, his favorite uh, Thai restaurant, Tasty Thai, all these great names. Uh, and after Laura's first bite, uh, Scott excitedly asked her, do you like it? Are you going to tell Brian about it? it? It was this idea of just one bite, and suddenly you must love this, you must join me in, in spreading this news. You know, to, to just love Tasty Thai was not enough for him. He, he absolutely wanted to see his sister love it and to invite me into that experience too. I, I remember that because that phrase has just become part of our family's vocabulary over the last 17 years. When, whenever we, we, we share something new and wonderful, uh, usually food, we'll, 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 with the other person, one of us will ask the other one, do you like it? Are you going to tell your brother about it? And it's this real cheesy kind of uh, excited thing. But the idea is, Yes, this is so good. I want you to love it, and I want you to tell other people about it. It's in our nature to draw others into whatever we love, even no matter how stupid the thing is you find yourself obsessed with. You've all been there, some weird sport, some weird exercise, some, something that someone wants to draw you into. But, but here, you know, David, after being rescued, after being saved, he, he speaks the praises of God to his brothers, to all who are in the congregation, so that all who know God might join in praising God. That's, that's one reason that we share our struggles with each other. I know sometimes we feel cut off, like we don't want to share what's going wrong in our life. Uh, the first reason, though, is so that we can actually pray for each other because we believe God hears prayer and responds to prayer, and so we want that. Um, but, but also so that we can give God praise and invite others into praise when, when God actually answers these prayers. If you're sick and get healed and no one knows it, sure, you can praise the Lord. But if you have others praying with you, then we can all praise the Lord together. In verse 24, we see that God has heard his cries and that he has not hidden his face. In other words, David's, uh, the enemies of David and, and Jesus, as we look into the New Testament, all despised them, right? The enemies of David despised David. The enemies of Christ despised Jesus. And yet, we never forget that God never despised either one of them. Even when Jesus dies upon the cross, he's not forgotten by the Father. God raises him from the dead, raises him back to life. 
And you who are a child of God by faith are never forgotten by God. Even in death, the promise of the Lord is that he will raise his people back to eternal life with him. In verse 26 here, we see it says, The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. See, the, the biggest problem with eating that I find is that we're never ultimately satisfied. Even if you, you, know, you go to Cain's and, and, and get the biggest thing you can get there, stuff yourself full, you're still going to want to eat breakfast the next day. That's, that's the nature of, uh, of our humanity, always needing you know, food at the next meal, or at least the one after that. And Jesus uses this reality in, in how he created us to talk about uh, what he's accomplishing on the cross. In John 6, 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, Jesus, Jesus is a food in this analogy. A bread for your soul that will truly satisfy, which is why in verse 26 we, we see this. May your, may your heart live forever. May There's something eternal that goes on forever. And that's a big deal in the Old Testament to see them speaking of that at all. So then back in verse 25, there's this mention of a great congregation. I, I love it. David's looking forward in time, and he notes that the congregation is going to include a few different people. In verse 26, we see it's going to include the, the poor and the afflicted. In verse 29, it says quite the opposite. It's going to include the prosperous, right? In verse 27 here, we, we see that this invitation is going to be extended well beyond the Jews. It extends to the ends of the earth. In other words... Uh, Gentiles, people like you and I, uh, are going to be invited into this. Christ's own teaching tells us that it's not just everyone on the planet either, but it's all who are trusting in Jesus by faith. And so we're seeing the rich and the poor, the Jew and the Gentile, men, women, children of every ethnicity and background. They're all in this great congregation, all because of the death of Christ on the cross and the rising from the dead. And what do they do? They, they worship the Lord. And so then, I want you to listen as I read the last two verses of our Psalm 22 today, verse 30 and 31. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn that he has done it. Posterity is a word thrown around. That I don't know that everyone knows what it means. It simply means future generations later on. Now, knowledge of all sorts from generation to generation is pretty great. I don't know that we appreciate it as a people enough. You know, uh, None of us in our life ever had to watch a chicken lay an egg and, and ponder, should we eat that? You know, I, I think it was Christine that pointed out to me the first time. The first person who had to eat an egg, what were they thinking? I mean, you saw where that just came out of the chicken. You're going to eat that? Uh, we never had to do that, though, right? Somebody did it way long ago, learned this information, and passed it down. So all we have to do is egg. Let's eat it. It's full of protein. We know that. Uh, that's beautiful in that regard. You think of some of the crazy recipes in the world. You know, you can be thankful for that. Who figured out how to make ice cream? Why are you putting all those things together and doing that to it? You know, and, and yet it gets passed on, and we, we get to enjoy it. And, I, and I'm telling you, it, it's the same, but in a much greater sense in regards to redemptive history. I, I just love the way that the psalmist's personal history here is part of the larger redemptive story of, of God in the world. 
Because your personal story is also part of God's larger part of redemptive history that's going on. Think, think about it. Where did you first hear the gospel? Was it a, a friend of yours? Was it a, a pastor, a parent, someone teaching somewhere, someone walking by, asking you weird questions on campus? Well, maybe it was more than one of these. But, but, but has it occurred to you that they heard the gospel somewhere else? From some other person who also heard the gospel from someone else and someone else and someone else. You know how you start to tie these strings like family tree type things? Um, I mean, this goes right back to, to Jerusalem, right? Throughout history. And God willing, it doesn't end with you that you're not just the end of the line. You're, you're part of the history of redemption in this small little way as you, as you sing God's praises and as you teach the good news of the gospel to your, your own children, to your friends, to your neighbors, to you know, the accomplished work of, of Christ on the cross then goes forward, even to those who are not yet born, all according to the sovereign will of our Lord. It's beautiful, Right? And so all who are delivered, who are rescued, then begin this new mission in life, right? That of making disciples. Tim Keller has said, God never calls us into love and change without then sending us out to reach and to serve others. When he says reach, he's talking about the gospel there. But, but more important than Tim Keller, I know that some of you need to know this, but more important than Tim Keller, Jesus instructed us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that doesn't just mean go as far as you can to do it. You start right where you are. That means the people in your own house. That means the people on your own street. That means the people in your own natural interactions as you go throughout your day. I'll give you one more thing here at the very end and then we'll be done. The, the last words of the psalm uh, state in reference to God. He has done it. It's interesting the, uh, just how similar those are to the last words of Christ on the cross. Recorded in John 19.30, where, where Jesus says, it is finished, and then he surrenders up his life there. That, that's, that's not a cry of defeat, it's a cry of completion, a cry of victory. His cry of forsakenness from the cross at the very beginning was, was the announcement that, that Christ had become a curse for his people, thus redeeming us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3 speaks of that. Um, but, but his cry of it is finished tells us Christ has fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant, the promise to bring salvation to the nations. And if Jesus has redeemed us, then what's left for us to do? It's important to understand this because the answer is nothing. Just, just believe the word of God and trust Jesus. This, this can be a very hard concept for us to understand. Because we always want to do something. We want to add something, do our part, or at least pay back, right? That, that's not what it is here, though. It's, it's not that at all. That's not what God has asked us to do. In, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 6, verse 28, there, there's a crowd gathered there, and, and one of the, the guys there speaks up, and he asks Jesus this question. What, what must we do to be doing the works of God? 
It's his own way of asking, you know, the ultimate question. What, what must I do to be forgiven? What must I do for salvation? What must I do to be at peace with God, my maker? And Jesus answers him. Listen to this. He said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That you believe in him. That you believe in, that you put your faith in, in Jesus Christ. Is your faith in Christ today? Then all you've got to do is rest in that. All you've got to do is rest in that. Okay? I know we always want to get it messy real quick, right? What about the fruit of salvation? That's a great conversation to have, but, but sometimes you just need to rest in this important very first part. The, the completion part, actually. If that's what your faith is, then you just rest in the Lord. It's not, if it's not though, right? If it's not where your faith is today, then, then you, you too can believe in the one whom God has sent. In fact, that's the call given out to you. Do believe in the one whom God has sent. Uh, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will find rest for your weary soul. Let's pray. Lord God, May our hearts praise you for what you have accomplished upon the cross for us. May our lips praise you in our homes and in the world as we call others to see your goodness and to join us as we praise you. Thank you that the generation behind us was faithful to proclaim your truth. Please make our generation just as faithful for the sake of the next generation and for the sake of your glorious name. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.